<laughs> okay, everybody, welcome. Uh, welcome to those of you who are viewing us online. Just um, for your sake particularly, uh, if you haven't checked your email in the last half hour... Oh, here comes Aaron. Is it working? Yeah. It worked. Okay, those of you who are on, on the Zoom, if you've not checked your email in the last half hour, please go check your email because you'll find in your inbox, I hope, uh, a message with the subject line Bible study handout or something of that kind. should have a PDF document attached to it. Uh, if by any chance you've managed to get the Zoom link and you're not on the email list, then, well, welcome. And um, <laughs> you might like to email me, actually, sj at allsaintskirk.com, and then we can get you on the email list if you'd like to. Um, I, I've got to tell you, I'm really excited about tonight because what I want to do is to uh, take the second step in exploring eschatology in a, in a way that I've never done before. I've taught this subject a, a bunch of times and I've taught it in lots of different ways, but I've never done this. Now, that might be a bad thing, um, but we'll see. I mean, I'll leave that to your judgment. The, the other reason I'm excited, I've got to tell you about this. Um, Pastor Shaw and I have had just the, the most enjoyable last three days um, Pastor Neil, a number of years ago, started meeting with his uh, long-time friend, Pastor Randy Booth, from uh, our sister church in Nacogdoches, just once a year, going away for a nice, relaxing couple of days, just to play pool and tell jokes and eat meals and go for walks and just relax and enjoy themselves together. And of course, Pastor Neil being Pastor Neil, and of course, Pastor Booth being Pastor Booth, realized that oh, here's an opportunity not just to go and relax and enjoy ourselves, but to serve other people. So they've turned their relaxing two- or three-day retreat into a pastor's retreat for our whole presbytery. So instead of just chilling out for two or three days like he used to, Pastor Neil will spend two or three days encouraging and uh, uh, teaching and ministering to all of us, um, most of whom are a few years younger than him and therefore benefit immensely from his wisdom and experience. And so... I just, I always come back buzzing from those, I mean, this is Pastor Shaw's first time going away with that, and, but I always come back buzzing from those uh, uh, early part of the year. Well, they call them, he calls it a retreat, I think of it more of an advance. <laughs> like, um, so, uh, Pastor Neil is actually at home tonight, he's got some other things that he needs to attend to, so, um, uh, but thank you, my friend, really appreciate it. Um, let me pray, uh, you should all have this handout. Um, exploring eschatology. The two in brackets isn't because you missed a handout last week. It's just week two. I'm trying to keep track of what we're talking about. Um, So let's pray and then we'll get started. Merciful Father, we are tremendously grateful to you for all your abundant goodness to us in our Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you that he's the king of heaven and earth, uh, the lord of history, the ruler of the kings on earth, the one who holds the nations in the palm of his hand, even while he intercedes for us before you, our heavenly father, the one who's filled with the same spirit that fills and animates us, and therefore we can pray to you with confidence, knowing that we are blessed in him. And we thank you for one another and for that gift of the spirit who unites us, and we pray that he would be at work to illuminate our minds and to draw our attention to new and wonderful things this evening as we explore eschatology together. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so here's what I want to do. Um, I'm going to recap last week very briefly, and then I'll explain what it is I want to do this week and how it fits into the subject that we're going to be uh, thinking about as a whole. And then I've probably got some work for you guys to do uh, because this handout uh, has a bunch of Bible references on it, some of which you guys are going to look up. And we don't have time for me to look them all up and explain them. What we need is you've got the handout so you can take it away with you and look them all up yourself if you'd like to, but uh, I'm going to assign different groups of you to look up different 
biblical text and we'll share the fruits of our researches together and we'll build a picture of what it is that they're saying. Now, that, what is that picture? Well, let me take a half a step back and remind you what I talked about last week. <clears throat> Eschatology, properly understood, though it means etymologically the doctrine of the last things, from the Greek eschatos, meaning last, ought to be understood as a philosophy of history as a whole. For lots of reasons. Obviously, you can only really understand the future on the basis of the past because it's one long historical trajectory over which God is sovereign. In fact, God is sovereign in such a way that there are patterns that repeat themselves so that if we could figure out what God is doing in the past, that might inform our understanding of how he's going to do things in the future. I can't remember who it was who said, history doesn't repeat but it often rhymes. Well, it rhymes because God is a storytelling God and he likes to repeat the same sorts of themes again and again. So by exploring the past, we're getting a handle on the future. And of course, the the major reason why we need to know about the whole of history in order to understand the future is because it's in the past that we find the seeds of that future history. We find the promises and the the, the structures that God has put in place, which will unfold throughout the generations and millennia as the future approaches us and becomes our past. you with me? So what we're trying to explore is what is the shape of human history as a whole? That's what eschatology is. Now, last week I devoted most of our time to trying to articulate a single, fairly simple point, which is that God reveals himself both in the things that he's made, objects, things, rocks and trees and flowers and people and mountains and fire and uh, dry rot and moths and everything else, and also in how events unfold through history. And we talked quite a lot about that, and I fear at times it may have got more complicated than it needs to, but I hope you... You came away with a sense of God is like an artist who is both painting a picture and so revealing himself. And you remember my slightly misfired artist illustration. Um, I got a lecture about that when I got home from my daughters who actually know something about art history. Thank you, darlings. Um, But he's also revealing himself in the things that he brings about during history. Let me try another illustration. Um, You know something about C.S. Lewis from the stories he wrote, yeah? Like The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. That was by C.S. Lewis, wasn't it? No, it was. Right, well, you, you get to learn something about God's character from the story that he tells, and the story he tells is history. It's the story we're living in. History is a revelation of the being of God. So, and this was all last week, if what you wanted to know was, well, what's the shape of history? You could start by asking yourself, well, what kind of a God do we have? Do we have a gracious and kind and powerful and expansive and infinitely rich and wondrous God? Well, then we're going to expect history to have that kind of shape to it. And there's lots more we could have talked about. And as I said, I hope it didn't get too confusing. It was sort of uh, informative at that level. Right, now... If it's the case that God reveals himself in the things that he's done and in the things that he's made, we could then look in a second place 
to try and get some clues about the shape of history. God has made a bunch of stuff. The narrative of his making that stuff is in Genesis chapter 1. And I want to say to you that that stuff reveals something about him, his character. And wouldn't it be interesting if the things that the Bible says about those things that he's made also told us something about the shape of history? Turn with me to Genesis 1. I'll tell you, show you what I mean. Genesis chapter 1. I'm not going to read. Um, so I will read the whole thing, perhaps. We'll see. But you, you've got here uh, a very famous six-day narrative, and then the seventh day in Genesis chapter 2, in which God makes light and the heavens and the seas and the dry land and vegetation and plants and seed and fruit trees and fruit and sun and moon stars and sea creatures and birds and land creatures and man. He makes all these things. Now, here's a question. How does scripture pick up the concrete images associated with these things? And what story does it use those images to tell? And the assertion I want to make tonight is that every single one of these images, as it's developed and unfolded in Scripture, in different ways tells a story of a God who is concerned to fill the earth with his glory or fill the earth with people who love him or show love to the whole world or establish a kingdom which grows throughout the whole world or have people who come increasingly to reflect his character in the world or perhaps supremely grow in number and fill and subdue the world in his name. All of the things that God makes in Genesis chapter 1 are used in Scripture as concrete images of the growth and gloriousness and majesty and extent of the kingdom of Christ and of the dimensions of God's rule over the world and his grace to the world. Contrast that with an alternative. And this isn't what God has done. God could have made a bunch of stuff in Genesis chapter 1 and then deployed the imagery of those things to describe stuff that shrinks and stuff that disappears and a God who remains hidden and people who persist in rejecting him and a story of history that climaxes with an anticlimax and with nobody really caring or knowing about the God who made anything. That's the story that the Bible could have told. Well, it doesn't tell that story. Um, Just to cut to the chase, my aim in this series of Bible studies as a whole is to articulate what history has come to call a post-millennial eschatology, which is to say a, a vision of the future in which Scripture teaches that the kingdom of Christ will grow till it fills the whole world. Not necessarily that every single person will be a Christian, but that you won't be able to move 
You won't be able to breathe. You won't be able to do anything without encountering the glory of God's goodness and kindness in the world. Nations will come to be, if not 100% Christian, certainly so shaped by Christian teaching and Christian uh, loves and Christian desires that they're recognizably Christian, like a family with 50 people in it of whom 49 love Jesus. It's a Christian family. That's where we're going in the next, I don't know, 15 weeks or something. But I just wanted to give you a preview by showing you that even in the things that God has made in Genesis chapter 1, what God does is then he takes these images of, I don't know, light or fruit or trees or stars, and every single image, as it's unfolded in Scripture, shows us of a God who is concerned to fill the earth, to show grace to the world, to expand his dominion, to expand his church, to increase the number of people who know and love him and to make his people more like him in the world. Are you with me? So what you're going to (laughs) do... is look up all these Bible verses, which are a tiny, tiny, pitifully small selection of texts that, if you look at the handout you've got in front of you, you can see how it's formatted. It's a tiny, pitifully small selection of texts that refer to, for example, the things made on day one, light, really, and separating light from darkness. What does the Bible do with that imagery? Well, we'll look at these texts and we'll find out. What does the Bible do with the imagery of the heavens and the waters above and the waters below? What does it do with the imagery of seas and dry land and plants? And so You see where we're going? And I don't know whether we'll get to day six. I hope we do. And we're more likely to get there if we start now. Let me pause. Any questions? Are you with me what we're doing? Excellent. Right. So, first day, Genesis chapter 1, verse 3. And God said, let there be light, and there was light, and God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and darkness he called night, and there was evening and there was morning the first day. Now, so he made, made light, he spoke, let there be light, and light came into being, and then he distinguishes or separates light from darkness. Right, so what does scripture do with these images? Okay, anybody over this side of the room, Exodus 13, 21 and 22, these tables here, Leviticus 24, 1 to 4, you guys on these tables here, you conveniently set out in sort of four rows of tables. Um, Psalm 104, verse 2, and right over on my right, your left, 1 John 1, verse 5, please. Quick as you can, quick as you can. And we're going to skim through these really quickly and see what we make of them. Has anybody found Exodus 13? Verses 21 to 20. And I know this looks like cherry picking. It is cherry picking. It's cherry picking relevant biblical texts that pick up these themes. Anybody who thinks I've not selected all the texts that refer to light in the Bible, you're quite correct. Have a fun evening uh, correcting my omissions. It really will be a fun evening. And it will confirm what we're about to discover, which is Exodus 13, verses 21 and 22. What's that? Yeah, go ahead. Hunter. And the Lord went before them by day. Right, okay, so you all see what the text says. Um, what does it tell us that the light is? Or what does it embody or reflect? Yeah, the Lord. The Lord went before them in a pillar of fire. Kind of interesting, it's where Moses encountered God, isn't it? Burning bush. This is though God is in the fire. And what's he, what's he in the fire for? Why would that be helpful to the people of God? 
to light, lighten their way. So they're walking through the wilderness at night. Well, how do we know where to go? We follow the one in whom light is found. And here we are in the darkness, and it's not that the darkness shines out into the light and compresses it, is it? <laughs> it doesn't work that way. It works the other way around. There's this blazing pillar of fire, which is the Lord lighting the way for his people and being close to his people to guide them. And that blazes out into the darkness and dispels the darkness. There's your first clue about the shape of Christian eschatology. Not sure what your first clue is, your 28th clue, actually. Yeah? Um, next, uh, Leviticus 24, verses 1 to 4. What's that all about? You could read it all. You could just summarize it for me. What's it? Um, Sarah, go on, help us out. Yeah, I know. It's horrible. I always pick on you. It's because you're a really good student, Sarah. You shouldn't be so competent. Go on. Right, very good. Yeah, wonderful. This is a description of the lampstand in the tabernacle and later the temple. And you notice that this is an instruction um, to the high priest to keep, keep it topped up with oil so that there's always in the sanctuary of Israel light shining. Why? Come on. Why don't we want the lights to go out in the sanctuary? Right, because God's presence is there. And so the sanctuary of Israel is a, an architectural memorial of the way things are, which is that God is always there shining brightly for his people and illuminating them. And so you don't want to let the oil run dry because then the sanctuary won't be rightly representing how things are because God is light and he's always there for his people. So Psalm 104 verse 2 is really easy. What does it say? Mr. Merrick. Uh, Mr. <laughs> Sorry, Mr. Loki. He wraps himself in light as with his garments. He stretches out the heavens like a tent. Yeah, he wraps himself with light. It's another kind of God is light. Speaking of which, 1 John 1 verse 5. Somebody just read it out. Shout it out as loud as you can, Sam. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness is not over. Oh, yeah, we're all four steps ahead of us. That's, that's John 1 verse 5. First John, first letter of John. Yeah, wonderful. Thank you, Mrs. Rybenden. This is the message that we have heard from him and now declare to you, drum roll please, God is light and in him is no darkness at all. So you can see the picture. What light is, according to the Bible, it's a revelation of the presence of God there to provide for and enlighten and illuminate his people. Yeah, you with me? Right, let's keep going. We're going to have to speed up. Um, now, Sam, you get to do um, John 1, 4 to 9. Um, let me, I told you, we'll do this a bit differently. We're not, I'm not going to always make you do the looking up. Um, uh, Sam, could you look up John 3, 19 to 21? I'm just going to, I'm going to walk you th- all through John chapter 1. So you'll turn with me to John chapter 1. This is really famous. I don't need to explain this too much, do I? So um, God is light there to guide and lead and illuminate the path for his people. And there's already this hint that, you know, whenever you have a light, if we had this room in complete darkness and we had one tiny candle, the light would still reach right into the corner. You'd still be able to see the light from the darkest and furthest corner of the room. And so how is this light made manifest in the world? Well, it's very straightforward. This is um, uh, John chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He's talking about the second person of the Trinity who's made incarnate in Christ. Uh, skip down to verse 5, no, verse 4. In him was life, 
and the life was the light of men. Notice the association between life for men, for people, and light. Obviously, you can see the association. You can't live without light. And it's Jesus who is the one who is the life for men and women, obviously. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not understood it or overcome it or comprehended it. Um, Come find a seat. Oh, goodness. Uh, Josh, there's one right over there. Good luck finding a seat. Well, one in the middle. Yeah. So again, here you've got made explicit the point that was hinted at previously. You can't make darkness darker so as to overcome light. However dark it is, light will always shine if there's a light there. Verse 6. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light so that all might believe through him. He wasn't the light, but he came to bear witness about the light, the true light which enlightens only a few people because, after all, you, know, you wouldn't want too many to be saved. <laughs> no. How many people does the true light enlighten? Everyone. Which, of course, throws your doctrine of salvation for a, several loops because you're like, oh, my goodness, what about those who aren't saved? What do we expect? And it's awkward. But... Isn't it interesting that, okay, let's say, to a first approximation, how many people are enlightened by Jesus? Everyone. No, not literally everyone. Judas Iscariot. Um, Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Tragically, many other people. But John seems to not worry remotely about, you know, when you've got to make a rough guesstimate at what's God going to do via this light that he sends into the world? He says, oh, I'm going to enlighten everyone. Isn't that shocking? Because we live in an age where we're frustrated by the lack of receptivity to the gospel that we see around us. And how foolish it is for us to allow our perception of what God is doing in history to be shaped by what we think is happening in Texas in 2023. How crazy is that? One of, and one of the challenges in understanding eschatology, rightly, is it's a challenge to our imagination. We cannot imagine a world that is filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea, but the Bible says that one day it will be. And it's, a, it's not an intellectual challenge. It's a challenge to our theological imaginations. And John is like, yeah, he's going to enlighten everyone. Um, Okay, so John three nineteen to 21. Do you want to just read that nice and loud, Sam? Wonderful, thank you. Um, So is it true that everyone sees the light and thinks, this is wonderful, I'm going to come to the light? Right, no. So what what do some people do instead? Mr Barnes. Go back into the darkness. Right, why do they go back into the darkness? Because they love the darkness. Right, they love the darkness because their... Their deeds were evil. Very good, yeah, good tag teaming, very good. So here, notice what you've got is overlaid on the idea of God being light and Jesus being light, you've got moral categories of goodness and evil, good and evil, overlaid on light and darkness. And it is true that 
Because some people prefer evil to good, they'll stay in the darkness and resist the light. See, John has a, has a nuanced eschatology in this sense. Now, who is the light of the world, John 8, 12? Jesus. I'm not going to make you look that one up because you all know John 8, verse 12. That's... So can you see how this, this picture is forming of what, what God did when he made a light is made something to reveal himself. This is what I'm like. I'm like light. Like an artist painting a bit of a painting. And the thing that he's painting shows you what he's like. What does it tell us about him? Well, we're starting to see. Let me show you a few more things. Now, I'm not going to make you look up all these things, um, because we'll never get to the end if we do. But So Acts 26, verse 18, Paul's mission is to turn people from darkness to light. Um, 2 Corinthians 4, verse 6. Uh, I love this text. I'm going to, I can't resist looking this one up. 2 Corinthians 4, verse 6. See how the imagery of light is used here. God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, quote from Genesis 1, the God who created light and made it shine in the darkness, has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Now, isn't that fascinating? Paul is taking the imagery of creation, light being created, and he's saying, the same God that made light shine out of darkness is also making light shine in our hearts. So there's a parallel between what God is doing in you and what God did in creation. This isn't a fanciful word association or image association game we're playing here. We're doing what Scripture does. Scripture takes the imagery of light being made in Genesis 1 and says, what you should learn from that is that's what God's doing in you. He's causing light to shine in us. And in particular here, light is now associated not so much with good and evil, but with ignorance and knowledge of God. To give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God. Remember the word glory. Glory in scripture is associated with the light that blazes forth from the presence of God, Ezekiel chapter 1. Don't have time to look up all these, but you know Ezekiel 1, the kind of crazy vision. If you want an art project, by the way, try and draw Ezekiel chapter 1. <laughs> My old, old Testament professor, Thomas Rentz, included a painting, as, as, uh, as a line drawing, drawn by one of his former students in his lecture notes of the, the vision in Ezekiel chapter 1. It's enough to make you dizzy, it's crazy. Um, but light, knowledge, glory of God, shining in us. And that's the message that Paul is proclaiming. First uh, Thessalonians 5, uh, verse 5, while well, um, falling in love again with First um, Thessalonians by preaching Second Thessalonians. Um, well, let's go back to verse 4. You're not in darkness, brothers. Because uh, there are some who are in darkness because their deeds are evil. They like the darkness, but you're not. You're children of light, children of the day. Not of the night, not of the darkness. Um, the next line down, Exodus 34.29. Don't look it up. Tell me, what's Exodus 34.29 about? Who remembers that? It's to do with light. Who remembers Exodus 34? And somebody's face. Is it God's face or Moses' face? Yeah. Mo- Moses' face shining. So what, how is it that the church is light? in Ephesians and First Thessalonians. Well, it's because like Moses, the church has come close to God. They've come close and seen him. We have seen his glory, the glory as of the only begotten son, full of grace and truth. If, if you see God, quote, unquote, quote, unquote, or perhaps in Second Corinthians 4 terms, you come to know God, 
the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. If you come to know him, your face sort of shines with him. And we all, with unveiled faces, Paul says, shine with that light in 2 Corinthians 3 and 4. Can you see how the imagery is working? So, yeah, there are some who choose darkness rather than light because their deeds are evil, but the church is the, the community of the light. So, what are we supposed to do? Ephesians 5 verse 8. We should all turn to this. All turn to Ephesians 5 verse 8. And some of you will remember this because you've been reading it or perhaps because we looked at it in Bible study um, some months ago. Ephesians 5 verse 8, well, I'll go back to verse 7. Uh, uh, Don't become partners with them, the sons of disobedience. For at one time you were darkness. Notice the darkness, evil connection again. You were darkness once, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. So what should you do? If your face shines, so to speak, like Moses, with the glory of God because you've seen him, quote unquote, you've come to know him, what should you do? Well, you should walk in the light, not in the darkness. And so light now becomes not a metaphor for what you are because you've encountered God who is the light shining out into the world, but a metaphor for what you should do. And those who get drunk, get drunk at night. But we're children of the day. We don't, we're not going to be doing that. Can you see? For the fruit of light, verse 9, is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what's pleasing to the Lord, because then you're walking in the light. Light now becomes an ethical pathway for us to walk in. And so, and then Philippians 2, verse 15, um, the... uh, Well, back to... Track back to verse 14. It's only two or three pages on from Ephesians 5, so I'm sure you've all got it already. Do all things without grumbling or questioning. Yeah, because grumbling and, or questioning in the sense of complaining is what, that's what goes on in the darkness, grumbling and complaining. It's what, the, it's what the Israelites did in the wilderness when they wanted to go back to the darkness of Egypt, grumbling in the desert. That you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. So, now, how does the light of God shine out into the darkness? Well, we, in Genesis 1, God's light shines into the darkness as he causes it to exist, and the light is like him. Now it's the church that is the light, and we are to shine like lights in the world. We shine into the darkness of the world, and it's not the case. It's, notice, it's not the case that you've got the light here and the darkness there, and the darkness pushes back against the light. The light drives out the darkness. It's like, always reminds me of that image of the gates of hell. I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Gates are defensive fortifications. Hell is not on the advance. They're on the defense, because defensive fortifications, and they're losing, because the gates of hell won't stand against it. Can you see all this imagery is... The universe in which we live and the light by which we see everything has been created by God and crafted by him to, among a gazillion other things, to convey this message that the church of Christ will shine into the world pushing back the darkness just as his light shone in creation to drive out the darkness. And the darkness can't stand against it. So when you get to Revelation 21 and 22... You're not remotely surprised to find in what is sometimes thought of as a depiction of the future state, but actually I think is probably an, uh, 
prophetic depiction of the church age. There are um, future state um, sections in this final portion of Revelation. I think the beginning of Revelation 21 is about after the resurrection. But I actually think this is probably uh, symbol-laden prophetic imagery talking about the age we're now living in. And the reason is because um, Revelation 21 uh, verse 24, for example, by its light will the nations walk and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. That is the city that God is building. The city is the people of God, the church, and the nations of the world are bringing their glory into the church now, not just in, in the future. In fact, in the future, that will be over and done. So it seems actually to be a way of talking about the age we're now living in. And what's going to happen in the age we're now living in? Well, there's no temple in the city. Why not? Well, because temple is the Lord God. And the city has no need of a sun or moon to shine on it. Why not? Because the glory of of God gives it light. And by its light will the nations walk. Its gates will never be shut. There'll be no night there. The city is the place where the light shines from and the gates are always open. And so people, nations streaming into this city, which is filled with the light that is the living God, which is shining from the faces of his people, through the godliness by which they live their lives, Philippians 2, Ephesians 5, yeah? Track down into verse 20, chapter 22, which is completely continuous. It's the same uh, narrative in this vision that John is seeing. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city, on either side of the city, side of the river, the tree of life, yada, 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 healing of the nations, all that kind of thing. Verse 4, they will see his face, which is why your face shines with the glory of God, because like Moses, Exodus 34. His name will be on their foreheads and night will be no more. In the imagery of light and darkness, who wins? There's light. There isn't any night. Now, it doesn't mean that you can drive home without headlamps tonight. It's not, this is a friend of mine, John Richardson, English clergyman, likes to say, Revelation is a vision, not a video. <laughs> it's not, you know, those, those grasshoppers aren't Apache helicopters. Don't, don't, don't get worried about it, right? It's, it's a vision in prophetic language drawing on Old Testament imagery. And where does the Old Testament imagery of light begin? It's Genesis 1 verse 3. And by the time God's finished with us, there's not going to be any night because the light has won. What's the shape of history then? Well, you start with creation of the world and one man and one woman, and it looks all right, and then it goes terribly wrong, good, bad. Where does it end up? Untold multitudes of the light. Can you see that's the shape of history? You get that from looking at Genesis 1 verse 3 and seeing how that imagery is developed through the scriptures. Are you with me? Can, can you understand what we're doing here? You're all looking like, think so, Yeah. Any pause? Any questions? Yeah, one or two, I bet. Yeah, go ahead, Aaron. Um, I was just thinking about this. Um, you're saying that the light's increasing like, throughout history. Hmm. Uh, in Matthew 5, you're the light of the world. Right, yeah. You draw on that connection with we're now the light. Yes. We're now increasing as well. So the, the, the Christian population. Right, you're the light of the world. Sitting on a hill can't be hidden. Nobody takes a light and, like, I want to hide it under a bush. It'll do a lot of good there. <laughs> no, no, you, you put it on a stand and it's going to light up the whole room. And it's fascinating because this has all kinds of practical uh, um, implications. Um, 
in your workplace, you're the only Christian, for example. Oh, man, it's going to be impossible because there's so much darkness around me. Really? It might be difficult and unpleasant and discouraging at times, but on average, on balance, in the long term, if we had 100 Christians in 100 workplaces and they're the only Christian and there's 5, 10, 15 unbelievers around them, what's going to win? Light drives out darkness. That should be our expectation. And so you start to see the implications of this for very practical, gritty realities of life. Going off to college. Okay, you need to be light, which is why I probably don't go to college yet. You're a little young. Yeah? You need to be trained so that your light will shine, even if the wind blows a little bit. You don't get blown out. But once you're you know, a mature young man, you're ready to go out into the world. And if that's where the Lord calls you, you, you know, light doesn't snuff out darkness. Sorry. The darkness doesn't snuff out, like you, you, you know, I've said it already. <laughs> darkness doesn't, it's great. When the congregation gets so switched on, they can correct all the preacher's mistakes, even the ones he doesn't notice he's making, like the East and West thing a couple of weeks ago. All right. All good? We, um, yeah, Mrs. Anderson, you had a question. Uh, so was darkness a created thing? Because Genesis kind of makes it seem like the darkness was already there. Oh, uh, yeah. And that leads into some of the, like, well, darkness, that wickedness is sort of the default state of man. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Very well loved doctrine, but I mean, what do we do with it? Yeah. So is darkness a created thing? I think it's. I think it's best to say light is a created thing. Yeah. And because you've got. Um, oh yeah, was how you write like Genesis one, one and two to the rest of it, which is tricky. Um, I th- hmm. <laughs> so there's a there's an issue here with how we actually uh, address the philosophical problem of evil. And actually, it helps to say, you know, light is the thing that's created by God. And darkness is what we observe where the light hasn't shone. It's the thing that's... That shadow under there is not caused by beams of darkness being shone out from the lamp, right? It's, it's an artifact of the fact that the light is shining. Um, now, insofar as darkness is a... Um, Thing and I don't I don't know I wish Pastor Neil wish you were here wish you were here insofar as it's a thing maybe it's because darkness can be beautiful in a or it can beautify things think of a sunset you know would you want to say that that's a good gift of God I think so but but within the framework of Genesis it's the light that God says let there be light not let there be darkness you know Pastor Shaw what do you think I mean you want to add anything I I like your first answer that created light yeah. Yeah, you, I should have just asked you straight away. Um, yeah, Sarah. Well, if the darkness was already there, man created along with light. Man wasn't there before light. Yes. Yeah, man was created in a world that had already been illuminated. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's right. Yeah. Uh, yeah it's one of those, is it? Go on. No. Not silly. Good question, probably. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I don't think it's a silly question. Um, he gives to his beloved sleep. Sleep is a good thing. You can't sleep so easily. And we, we rely on the cycle of the day and the night. And so it's interesting, just to go back to your question, and this is partly what's in my mind about not wanting to say light is nothing to do with God. So darkness is nothing to do with God. He calls the darkness night and sets in train the light, dark, day, night cycle, which is a good thing. So I think, yeah, I do want to, affirm that and 
it's also many, many other things. So all these questions have multiple tentacles. So sleep and our need for it is a manifestation of our finitude, our finiteness. It's good for us to run out of gas and just be reminded that you don't have infinite energy. It's a humbling experience to get to the end of the day and have items on your to-do list still not done, isn't it? Um, yeah. So you're not God. Sorry about that. And um, of course it's good to be more productive, but, you know, we're limited. So, yeah, there's all that stuff. Yeah. Um, I throw more of a wrinkle, and I don't mean to, but where we talk about in Exodus where there has to be a pillar of fire, God created night so that they would have a need to not just walk by themselves. They yeah, would have yeah. to rely on him. I think that's kind yeah. of how history is shaped to reveal that need. Yeah, I think that's right. I think, it, I mean, and again, you could parse that differently. So, d- does God create the circumstances that reveal our need? In some sense, He does. He's sovereign over them. You certainly want to say He's sovereign over the fact that the sun goes down and plunges the world, minus electric lighting, into darkness. Yeah. All right. Thank you. Can you, yeah, Mr. Barnes. Yeah. Go ahead. Yeah, I think that's right. That, that's certainly true. And it's just the day-night cycle being a good thing suggests that that's a... Correct. Yeah, yeah. No, All right. But, but in the metaphor of darkness and light and light being and God, if, if one would expand that metaphor, then couldn't one say that darkness under this metaphor is the absence of light, it's the absence of God, in which case did God mm-hmm. he created, he created a space, an area, metaphorically speaking, that he was not in, but that he mm. foreordained himself to be in. Yes. I, I think it's, it's, it's interesting just to reflect that unless you create such a space artificially, there are no dark places in the universe. Just think about that for a second. That Even on a cloudy night under a tree, you might not be able to see the light, but there's light there. From something. Um, we can go deeper into that, but I want to um, keep going, otherwise we're going to run out of time. Thank you, appreciate it. Okay, so you can now see what we're going to do with the next day's events, can't you? Uh, verse 6, uh, on the second day, God said, let there be an expanse or a firmament in the midst of the waters and let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the firmament or expanse and separated the waters that were above, so under the expanse from the waters that were above it. And it was so God called the expanse heaven, and there was an evening and morning in the second day. Please don't ask me what the expanse is. I don't know. I don't think anybody does. It's not a solid dome that you'd hit your head on if you climbed a ladder high enough. I think it's a phenomenological description, probably, of what the sky looks like as you look up at it. And probably, again, I'm tentative about this, God is creating the, the heavens, in, both in the sense of the dwelling place of God, his own created space, and also the same word in, in Hebrew, Shemayim, means sky, just the, the blue thing that you see up there. So there's those two senses of heaven, where God lives, where God dwells, first, and then second, what you see when you look up. And then there's waters up there, clouds, maybe, and waters below, rain that falls on the ground where rivers and streams are. Best I can do. I know there's about 15 other possible interpretations, but none of them, mercifully, few, really alter the point we want to make here, which is 
Well, let's ask ourselves the question again. How does God, in the rest of his word, develop and deploy this imagery of heaven, in the sense of sky and his dwelling place, and rain, waters falling from the heaven? Let's have a look. And you can see I've got you some references here. And time is pressing on, and I'm going to speed up the rate at which I'm talking. Only joking, not really. I'll try and slow down and make it legible. And, uh, or understandable. Revelation 4, what's going on in heaven? It's just kind of interesting, isn't it? When John the Apostle sees a vision, which is the book of Revelation, he sees this vision that Jesus shows him. Revelation 4, verse 1, I looked and behold, a door standing open in heaven. I'm like, this is interesting. I'm going to go up here and have a look. And he goes up and round the throne, verse Six, you've got all these living creatures and lion, ox, man, eagle faces and four living creatures with six wings. And what are they doing? They're saying, oh, yeah, the Lord's okay, but nothing to be excited about. No. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and who is to come. Down to verse 11. uh, Well, no, verse 10. The the 24 elders, what are they doing? Don't ask. I'm not studying the book of Revelation. But they cast their crowns before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. How long does he last? Well, he lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive honor and glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. So what happens in heaven? God gets praised. Heaven is not a place where there is emotional neutrality about the goodness and glory of God. It could have been like that. We're so used to the way that things actually are that we scarcely realize that this is all deliberate and it's designed to communicate something about God and his purposes and his character and one of the things that he's made heaven he then fills with beings who do nothing but praise him why well that's a really important thing that needs to get done a lot so we're going to have an entire created space devoted to that acts 4 verse 12 just flick back to that with me, picks up the heaven in the other sense, heaven in the sense of just the sky, and it becomes a kind of, um, under the heaven becomes a way of talking about under the sky. Um, And have you ever noticed this in Acts 4 verse 12? This is Peter and John as they're they're called before the council because, you know, they're preaching the gospel and all that awful stuff. Um, Track back to verse 11. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you lot, the builders, and has become the cornerstone. There is salvation in no one else, for there's no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Isn't that interesting? It doesn't say by which we may be saved. There's a sense of compulsion in what um, the apostles are saying. To paraphrase, they're saying, under the skies, under heaven, that is to say, everywhere on earth, a name has been given. Jesus is that name, and men must be saved by that name. It's necessary that people be saved. It's a really odd thing to say, unless it were the case that God has some kind of compelling purpose and wants every tongue in heaven and on earth, under heaven, 
to declare that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And lest there be any doubt about it, of course, you then turn to the next text, which is Philippians chapter 2, which says exactly that. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the very nature of God, made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, humbled himself, obedient to the point of death, even death of the cross. Therefore God has exalted him and bestowed on him the name that's above every name, so that at the name of Jesus quite a lot of knees would bow. <laughs> Can you see again? Every knee will bow. And I think we're to, t- we're to take this, like, yeah, willingly or unwillingly. Like, Pharaoh's knee will bow. Judas's knee will bow. But this doesn't look like the picture is dominated by people unwillingly bowing the knee, does it? The rhetorical and emotional tone of this is that the knee bowing is mostly done by people who, well, they spend quite a lot of their lives gathering together on Lord's Day morning to bow the knee and confess their sins to Jesus. You with me? Every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. In heaven and on earth, and under the earth, every, every knee. What's, so think again of what we're doing. The image of heaven, which is a concrete thing, or two things really, that God has made, is then developed and deployed through the scriptures as a place where there's consistent full-time worship and a place under which every knee ought to join them. Now, something that falls from the heavens... Uh, rain. Turn with me to the Psalms, Psalm 147. How is God going to use the image of rain? Is he going to use, is this what God could have done? God, God could have used the imagery of rain as an image of that's the thing that puts out fires so that the light doesn't shine anymore. That never once in the scriptures is the, is the image of rain used like that. Isn't that fascinating? Because it does that all the time. <laughs> like mercifully, like in California and stuff where there are wildfires. God could have used the imagery of rain consistently as a, this is a thing I've made which is going to damp down the fire of the spirit. He doesn't do that. That's not how God uses the imagery of rain. What does he do? So Psalm 147 and 148. Psalm 147 first. Sing to the Lord with thanksgiving. Make melody to our God on the lyre. He covers the heavens with clouds and prepares rain for the earth. He makes grass grow on the hills. He gives to the beasts their food and to the young ravens that cry. Rain is the thing, in other words, that comes from the clouds, that waters the earth and makes it fruitful. And so what should, what should our attitude be to the rain? I mean, obviously, there's a gazillion other texts which we could look at, we're going to look at in a second, under the heading of drought and rain. But before we get to that, Psalm 148. Praise the Lord. Who should praise the Lord? Well, you should praise the Lord from the heavens and in the heights, all his angels and all his hosts. Well, they're doing that. They've, they've obviously heard that instruction because they're still doing it in Revelation 4 quite a long time later than this. Praise him, sun and moon and all you shining stars. Praise him, you highest heavens and you waters above the heavens. I don't know what that's a reference to. It's probably some symbolic connection with the heavenly tabernacle where there's, in, in symbolic terms, kind of water for cleansing and purification, perhaps. But concretely, perhaps it's rain. Maybe rain praises God. Well, rocks can praise God, so presumably rain can. Now, what about the absence of rain? Well, look at the next couple of um, references. Deuteronomy 11, verses 11 and 12. Just as it's true that some people reject the, darkness, reject the light and hide in darkness because their deeds are evil, so it's true, tragically, 
that some people uh, experience lack of rain as judgment, but not everybody. God's own people, his people Israel, Deuteronomy 11 verse 11, the land you're going to to possess is a land of hills and valleys which drinks water by the rain from heaven, a land the Lord your God cares for. The eyes of the Lord your God are always upon it from the beginning of the year to the end of the year. Rain is a way in which God pours, literally, forth his kindness and goodness to his people from heaven. We won't look up those other references. You know what's going on in 1 Kings 17 and 18. The, this is the account of Ahab and Elijah, where there's the drought, and uh, then the priests of Baal, and then the Lord sends rain after that, after the priests of Baal have been executed. So there you've got absence of rain. Oh man, you would never want that. To experience that, and in the ancient world, of course, in agricultural economies, absence of rain meant death by starvation because famine Um, and the Lord's blessing is shown to his people as they're faithful to him in rain that pours down from heaven so pause a second ask yourself the question that we began with how does scripture deploy the imagery of heaven and water that falls from heaven it says heaven is a place where God is worshipped, under heaven God will be worshipped by everybody or nearly everybody or as good as everybody. And the stuff that falls from heaven, well, that's how God blesses and looks after his people. God is a kind and gracious God. You can expect him to look after you. He's going to be okay. Because of course he's going to do that. Because So what's the shape of history going to involve? You can expect, let's talk in figurative language, you, you may experience times of drought, but the Lord will reign upon you. Can you see how scripture speaks in that kind of way? And we're, we're sufficiently poetically aware to hear what that means, aren't we? You've, you've, some of you have had times of drought and dryness. And the Lord has rained on you eventually, one way or another. Sometimes he was raining on you even when you thought it was all drought. You noticed subsequently that actually, yeah, he was doing something good then. He's that kind of a God. That's the shape that history is going to take. Oh, goodness, we're on day two still. Day f- we've got four days and we've got 20 minutes. We've got loads of time. What could possibly go wrong? Okay, so day three. I'm not going to read this, but God creates loads of things on day three. Seas and dry land. He separates the sea from the dry land and scoops all the water together in one place and then all the dry land appears. And then he's got vegetation, plants, seed, fruit, trees, and fruit. All grows on the, the land. One of my favourite... Um, scriptural images is found in Ezekiel 47. Um, This is still kind of to do with waters in a sense. And you can see the connection between days two and three. There are all kinds of interconnections between the days, by the way. Sometimes people divide them into one, two, three, four, five, six. Yes, that's right. Forming and filling. You can see that. But there's also connections between the days, the things that are made and the things that are uh, done on the different days. It's, it's always more complicated than our little simplifications. So what happens in, in um, Ezekiel 46? Well, this is part of Ezekiel's vision of the future after the restoration from exile. The people of God have been taken away into exile. The temple has been um, torn down and ransacked. And uh, a few decades later, what's going to happen? Well, the Lord's going to 
bring you back. But Ezekiel sees in his visions at the end of his book a future beyond that. It's a future that's fulfilled in Christ. You know that from how Jesus uses the imagery of the water flowing from the temple that we're going to see right here in Ezekiel 47. And this temple, which could never be built, it's far too complicated and big and wouldn't work architecturally. It's a vision, not a video. Um, is an image of the life of the church in Christ. And that's massively carving through tons of exegetical work that we're not doing, but that's basically what's going on here. Now, so you see uh, what Ezekiel sees in his vision, Ezekiel 47. He, um, he, God, brought me back to the door of the temple, and behold, water's coming out from below the threshold of the temple towards the east, because the temple faces east, or holy places faced east, face east. Why? Well, it's obvious. So that the light from the sun, the first rays of light, or literally wings of light, remember that when we get to day five, that come across the horizon, shine into the holy place and illuminate it. Because light, God, etc. Um, and here's a plumbing leak. <laughs> you go home, imagine that, and there's water pouring out from the bricks in front of your... You're like, oh my, no, what's happening? But this is a really weird plumbing leak, because what happens is you've got... Um, you, uh, the, the, the vision that the prophet sees... The water is trickling out on the south side. And so he goes down eastwards, verse 3, and he's kind of measuring how deep the water is. And the further he goes, what you're expecting, if you have a plumbing leak in your house, there's water gushing out here by the door and the wall. And then over here, it's kind of dissipated and it's gone, it's sort of gone underground and it's all drained away and is ruining your foundations. Nightmare. But this is a really weird flow of water because the further he goes away from the temple, the deeper it gets. It's a miraculous flow of water. And to quote somebody, by this he meant the spirit that those who believed in him were later to receive, as Jesus says in John's Gospel. And so he goes through and it's like ankle, knee deep and then waist deep and then it's so deep in verse um, 5 that he couldn't swim through it because it's, it's gone you know, it's above your head or something, chest deep. And it flows all the way, verse 8, he said to me, this water flows towards the eastern region and goes down into the Arabah and enters the sea. Now, that's the Dead Sea. Why, how do you know that? We'll keep reading. When the water flows into the sea, the water will become fresh. What, somebody tell me about the Dead Sea. What's, what's the Dead Sea like? Yeah, nothing grows there. It's got this hypersaline, amazing chemistry goes on in the Dead Sea. It's like really, really super concentrated salt solution, basically. You can... F- it's really scummy and disgusting. A friend of mine went swimming there once. You can go swimming in the Dead Sea. But it's really nasty. I wouldn't recommend it. Anyway, but it's so salty, nothing can grow there. What happens if you put fresh water in salt water? It's still salty. It's like, it might be a bit less salty, but it's still salty. Well, what happens here is that this is like miraculous, super fresh water. It takes away the saltiness. And... When the water flows into the sea, the water will become fresh, and wherever the river goes, every living creature that swarms will live, and there will be very many fish. For this water goes there, and the waters of the sea will become fresh, so everything will live where the river goes. Because one way of articulating what God is doing through the whole of human history is to say, the salty seas... Even the sea that's so salty that nothing can grow and live in it are being freshened by the waters of the Spirit. So what he really wants, when he sends his Son, from whom the water flows, who is the Spirit, he wants to get some disciples, and he's going to call them 
fishers of men, because men are like fish. Right? Stick with me. Men are like fish, and so the, the disciples are going to go out preaching the gospel, empowered by the water who is the spirit, and the, the men who are like fish are going to be harvested by the gospel-preaching apostles, disciples. Yeah? You with me? And they're going to live even in places where you thought, man, that's so, to borrow a previous image, dark. Nothing could live there. That's so salty. Nothing can live there. And the Spirit's like, yeah, hold my beer. <laughs> the Spirit likes a challenge, see? Let me, let me try and freshen something that's so salty that it kills everything. Um, same cluster of images, Psalm 65. Um, lending explicit support to what I was saying about the um, disciples and fishers of men and so on and so forth. Look at Psalm 65. Praise is due to you, O God, in Zion, and to you shall vows be performed. O you who hears prayer, to you shall all flesh come. That's a hint right there. We're going to praise you, God, because you hear prayer and all flesh, like all people, come to you. Um, you atone for our transgressions, verse 3. Blessed is the one you bring near. Now, verse, verse 5. By awesome deeds you answer us with righteousness, O God of our salvation, the hope of all the ends of the earth and of the farthest seas. Why the... What, what's with the seas here? What do the seas represent, so to speak? What's the symbol of seas connected with? Yeah, Gentile nations of the world. Look, the one who by his strength established the mountains, being girded with might, who stills a threefold parallelism. Look really closely. The roaring of the seas, the roaring of the waves, the tumult of the peoples. Seas, waves, peoples. The waves of the roaring sea are like the Gentile nations of the world surrounding the land, which is the land of Israel. You see how the imagery works? And that theme is then developed through the rest of the psalm. And notice again what it speaks, how it speaks about the extent of what God is going to do, both on the land and to those seas. Verse 8, those who dwell at the ends of the earth are in awe at your signs. People who live all the way over in Britain or even Texas are going to see what you've done and be in awe of you. Verse 9, you visit the earth and water it and enrich it. The river of God is full of water. You provide their corn. So this is back now land imagery. So the people from the seas come to the land where they're enriched and fed. You water its furrows abundantly, settling its ridges, softening it with showers, blessing the earth. You crown the year with your bounty. The wagon tracks overflow with abundance. There's, There's such a great harvest that it's falling off the trucks. And nobody bothers to pick it up. It's filling the furrows that the wagon wheels create on the tracks that are taking it to market. The pastures of the wilderness overflow. The hills gird themselves with joy. The meadows clothe themselves with flocks. The valleys deck themselves with corn. They shout and sing together for joy. What sort of shape is history going to take? It takes this shape where um, what God does is says to all the seas, which are like the nations around them, the land of Israel, shh. Quiet, be still. Does that remind you of anybody? 
<laughs> you thought that was just a miracle to show that Jesus is the Messiah, which it is, but it's not just a miracle to show that Jesus is the Messiah. Yeah? Jesus is fulfilling when he still calms the storm. He's, he is the one who calms the nations. And then, of course, he's in Galilee, which is Gentile territory, drawing people to him. And the celebration is so rich and so abundant. There's so much food to go around in celebration that people just let it lie all over the road and it's just like a mess everywhere. But nobody cares because God has blessed the people so richly and so much. You see, ladies have a question. Yeah, Anne, go ahead. Yeah, you, you, you visit the earth or, or the land and water it, yes. Okay. Yeah. Now what, you're, what you'll start to see, now you can read the Bible again with kind of fresh eyes, in, or through new eyes, as somebody once said, <laughs> let the reader understand. Um, you start to see all these concrete images intersecting and informing each other. Um, and water and mountains, and trees, and fruit. In the real world, operate in a certain way. The water feeds the trees which produce fruit. And so those concrete images build on each other. And so you then think, oh, interesting. Um, Next, but one uh, heading down, is all about plants and trees and fruit. I'm skipping over Genesis 6 to 9. Well, God made the dry land as a place of safety from the storm, this is Noah and the flood. We could do, there's a whole kind of four chapters there we could delve into. So the seas are the roaring nations, which he says, shh, quiet, and then welcomes people from them to him. But they are a place of danger from which he rescues his chosen eight people. Why eight? Because eighth day is resurrection day, obviously. I know, it's crazy, isn't it? But it's just kind of, this is Henri Blochelet, French theologian in first the first time I heard anybody point this out, the number eight in the Bible is associated very prominently with uh, new life, new start. David is which son of Jesse? Eight. Anyway, um, where were we? Yes, plants, trees, and fruit. God made them in Genesis 1. Um, in, let me skim through these really quickly. Genesis 2, they're a gift from God. Psalm 127, 128, fruit Fullness is likened to what? Children. Children are like the fruit of the womb. That's what it says. And it's the same word for fruit in Hebrew and in English. It's a, so for those able to have children, you're like a tree. Well, obviously you're like a tree. We'll see that in a second. And you bear fruit in the form of children, which is a blessing from the Lord and we already know because Genesis 17, Acts 2 and 50 gazillion other places that God promises to be God to you and not to your children because they've got to wait till they're old enough. No, to you and your children because he loves your children too. So is God the kind of stingy God that wants like one Christian per family? (laughs) No, he's like, I was talking to Mrs. Fraser the other day about uh, 10 covenant children walking with the Lord. Isn't that wonderful? It's just like God kind. You do that for a few generations, we'll soon fill the earth and subdue it. We'll have to go to other planets and colonize them. And you're thinking, that can't be right. You've got to be crazy. Why? We'll get to it later in the eschatology course. Don't worry. Um, 
Isaiah 5, Israel is like, don't look it up, what? Israel like in Isaiah 5. Somebody who hasn't said anything. <laughs> Go on then, look it up. It's a beautiful poem, it's a chiasm, obviously. Mr. Barnes. Like a vineyard. Very similar to the parable. Yeah, very good. So, again, we've got another concrete image. Trees or vines or plants, fruit-bearing plants. What's the Lord going to do with this image? Well, Isaiah 5, Israel. Of course, Israel is hacked down in Isaiah 10. But there's a stump still left in the ground, and then this shoot comes up from the stump. And what's the shoot in Isaiah 11? The shoot will... Oh, come on, look it up. I'll let let you cheat. A shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. Was David in the first instance? Because Jesse. But of course, David is the, the great chosen anointed king and the ancestor of Jesus. And um, the, the poem that begins in Isaiah 11, verse 1, which shows what this stump of Jesse will do, um, ends in chapter 11, verse 9. Um, the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Does it, the waters cover the sea quite comprehensively, if you noticed. There's no bit of the sea that the waters don't cover. If God had wanted to say, I'm going to be really stingy, doling out, as Pastor Wilson likes to say, doling out salvation with a teaspoon. He hasn't done a very good job, has he? Um, Where are we? So, Isaiah 5, um, Israel is a vine, gets chopped down in judgment, but there's still a, a shoot that will arise from the stump that has been chopped down. And what's... What's going to happen to the tree? Well... It's interesting, in Matthew 13, you've got multiple parables of growing plants or trees. Parable of the sower, 30, 60, 100 times as much as what you sow. You can't even get that with modern genetically engineered um, plants. In the ancient world, you get four or five times what you sowed, maybe 10 if you're lucky, as Calvin wouldn't have said. Um, you, you sow the tiniest seed, and it becomes the largest. Did Johnny just do it like this? Like, very good, Johnny. It becomes the largest of all possible trees. What's the smallest seed in Matthew 13? Mustard, mustard seed. How big is a mustard bush, by the way? It's not, yeah, it's not that big. And so some commentators have said, oh, this is a really silly parable because the mustard tree is not the largest tree. And I think it, who is it? Um, Dick France, R.T. France, British um, Bible commentator. He, was, he preached at the chapel at the seminary I was at once. And somebody asked him a question, I think, afterwards. And he said, yeah, it's a miraculous mustard seed. (laughs) Of course it is. Like a hundred times what was sown. Matthew 13 is about miraculous seeds. And the seed is the what? In the interpretation of the parable. The word of God. The seed is the word of God. So it's a miraculous seed, obviously. And it produces a harvest. 30, 60, 100 times what's sown. You don't know what you're sharing your gospel with your next-door neighbor is going to do in four generations' time. And one little seed produces a tree, and all the birds of the air 
which is another image of the Gentile nations of the world, nest in its branches. So the tree is like Israel, and all the Gentile nations come and nest in its branches. Uh, who's the vine? John 15, Jesus is the vine, we're the branches, and we need to abide in him, and then we bear much fruit. So all we need to do is abide in Jesus, and then you'll bear a tiny weeny bit of fruit, maybe one grape a year. No, much fruit. And then Galatians 6, 22, 23, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. What, what, what's this um, depicting altogether? Um, God made trees, Genesis 1. Um, his people are like trees, Isaiah 5, who sometimes come under his judgment, but still God will find a way of rescuing them through the Messiah, David, Jesus, the knowledge of whom will fill the world as the waters cover the sea, because the miraculous word, which is the seed from which the tree grows, will produce a ridiculously large harvest, and even puny little bushes will become massive trees, because they just will, because it's miraculous. And it's Jesus that's the vine. And if you just abide in him, you'll bear much fruit. And you feel so feeble sometimes. You think, how could the Lord build a a glorious and world-filling kingdom through people like you and me? And John 15 tells you, abide in me. Remain in me. And you'll bear much fruit. Much love, much joy, much peace, much patience, much kindness. Goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Not, yeah, there's this little tree and it sort of withers up and it's always a remnant and it's always going to be dry. I'm only a dry tree. Let no eunuch say I'm only a dry tree. Not even a eunuch. Isn't that weird? Okay. Are you getting the picture? How many days have we done? We did three days. That's quite good, wasn't it? Halfway through. Now, I wasn't going to spend much time on day six anyway, so that's actually more than half, sort of. Um, We've missed... Day four and five were really good. But I've still got one minute until quarter past, and then I've got the extra three minutes. So, hold on. I'll be as quick as I can. Genesis 22... um, your descendants will be as the stars of heaven. The angel of the Lord says to Abraham after he's been ready to sacrifice his son on Mount Moriah. How many stars are there? Um, roughly uh, tens of billions of stars in each of hundreds of billions of galaxies. I, I know that because I used to be a physicist. When God wants to have a, a, an image of the number of people who are going to be offspring of Abraham, and we are Abraham's seed, Galatians, he chooses about the most numerous thing that you could see. And if you've ever been out to northern Montana on a cool night, cool clear night, or every night in the ancient world in Israel, you, you, you don't see stars. You see this dust of white stuff, because the stars are so... You do see some stars, because some are really bright, but there's so many that it's like a kind of... It's almost like paint. The stars almost merge into each other, apart from the really, really bright ones. That's how many. Isaiah 13 um, likens the death of a king to the 
snuffing out of a star. Well, that's one less, I suppose. So that's 100, million, 100 billion times um, 10 billion minus one. There's still quite a lot left. And I've talked about the imagery of stars and Jesus and the wise men, and you've heard me talk about that before, so I'm not going to talk about it again. Philippians 2 uses a very, very strange word to describe how we should shine, and it probably ought to be translated something like shine as stars. Um, children of God without blemish in a crooked and depraved generation among whom you shine like stars in the world. So just as the stars shine an inescapable light into the world, so we are to shine an inescapable light into the world around us. And then sea creatures and birds, day five. Well, it's really fascinating word association. In in Genesis 1-2, the Spirit of God is said to hover, rachat, over the face of the waters. That verb only appears one other place in Scripture, and it's in Deuteronomy 32, verses, verse 10 or verse 11, I forget which one. And it's about how the Lord hovers like an eagle hovering over its nest, fluttering or hovering over its nest. So the Spirit of God hovering, wings of a bird, in creation, is like the Lord hovering over his people like an eagle watchfully guarding and protecting them. So birds, very interesting image in the Bible. Birds' wings are the place you want to be sheltered under. The Lord guides and shelters his people under his wings because it's a dangerous place out there, dangerous wilderness, you could get lost. The Lord's going to look after you. So how I long to gather you, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how I long to gather you like what? A hen gathering its chicks under its wings. That's what Jesus says. Because Jesus is the fulfillment of the imagery of the bird gathering its young which is like the lord gathering his people um, the book of jonah what's that got to do with birds well, the hebrew word for dove is yonah his name means dove and what's the book of jonah about it's about a prophet who hates the nations hates the gentiles doesn't want any of them to come to know the lord and he explains the reason i wanted to go to nineveh is because i knew you were a gracious and compassionate god slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love that's why i went to nineveh because i knew you'd save them your horrible, beastly God, being so compassionate. <laughs> and so God has to drag him, you know, fish, you know, self-pitying poem in chapter 2. Then you've got all the stuff in chapter 3 when the nation actually repents. And then he goes up on the mountain to watch God destroy the city. And then he complains when God doesn't. And God has to, like, what can I say? Okay, here we are. I'll give you a plant and see if this teaches you a lesson. And the, whole, the climax of the book is, should I, not be, should I not be concerned about that great city? which has all those people in it and lots of cows. <laughs> That's what it says. Because <laughs> God, God even cares about the cows. And he has to teach his idiot prophet a lesson about how he wants to gather the nations under the wings of the Jonah dove. Um, speaking of wings, um, Exodus 19, verse 4. Almost done, almost done. Bear with me, bear with me. Almost there. Um, you know how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will... This is um, before the giving of the Torah. God has brought his children out on eagles' wings, because Deuteronomy 32, he's going to explain that later. Now, if you will obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasure possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you're going to be my treasure possession out of all the people. So I love you as a way of claiming all the world. I want all the nations of the world to come to me. 
because they all belong to me. Um, which is why it just seems so obvious to Boaz in Ruth chapter 2 to say, you're a remarkable woman, I've heard about you. Um, may you be blessed by the Lord under whose wings you've come to take refuge. And then in chapter 3, she says to him, spread the wings of your garment over me. Or literally, just spread your wings over me. In your Bible, it probably says, spread the corner of your garment over me, for you are my redeemer. And the, the word is wings. Wings in the Bible means three things. It's the word kanaf. It means either wings of a bird, it can mean the corner of the garment, or it can mean the rays of the rising sun, the wings. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, Psalm 139, same word. And here Ruth recognises that she's got a redeemer with wonderful wings and says, would you be willing to spread your wings over me? Marry me, in other words. Wouldn't it be wonderful if we had a redeemer who would be willing to make us his wife? Oh. Right, press pause, summarise very briefly. Can you see what we've done? We're going to be embarking on what amounts to a a historical survey of what God does throughout the whole Bible as a way to try and understand the shape of human history, past and future. But embedded in the very things that God has made the universe out of, all the things he mentions in chapter 1 of the book of Genesis are later used in symbol-laden, imagery-filled texts to depict the growth and extent of the kingdom of God, the, the majesty of God, the unfathomable depth of his kindness, his love for every nation and his filling of the whole earth with the light of his glory. That's what history is going to be shaped like. So that's a kind of spoiler for the whole of the rest of this Bible study series. All happy? I hope so. I mean, it doesn't get much better than this. Let's pray, shall we? Merciful Father, we are grateful to you for your kindness in causing us to experience, even now, the abundance of your blessings, which you have shown us tonight are for many, many peoples. We pray you would teach us to walk with gratitude, to keep in step with the Spirit, to show their fruit that comes from abiding in Christ, to shine as lights in the world, to be steadfast and firm like solid trees planted by streams of water, to be like a refreshing spring, pure water, and above all, to be faithful to you and to love you with our heart and soul and mind as we uh, live through and experience your kindness shown in our histories and our lives, that we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you very much, everybody. God bless you. And I'll see you, gentlemen, on Saturday morning, if you're able to make it to the Men's Discipleship Breakfast. We'll be in here. Everybody else, Sunday. <laughs>